Okay, this morning you can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis 2, verse 18. <clears throat> We've been looking the last uh, few weeks at God's creation of humanity. And we've been looking at this from all different angles. We've been talking about how we are created in God's image. We've been talking about the unity of the human race and how God from one man made every nation of men. We, we talked about it doesn't matter what category or, or box that you fall into, uh, your life is valuable before God from the youngest to the oldest, from the richest to the poorest. It, it doesn't matter. God created us uniquely in His image to be His representatives on the earth. Yes, I gave a reference before where like, you know, you go and you fill out a survey or, or some paperwork and they're, they're asking like, what's your age and what's your race and, and all these types of things. And there's one box on those surveys that, that we haven't dis- discussed yet. And that would be uh, often it's uh, marital status. Are you single? Are you married? Are you divorced? Are you separated? And this morning, we are going to look at what Scripture says about singleness and marriage, and we're going to begin with the creation account. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're going to go lots of different places and talk lots of different topics. This is a 30,000-foot overview, trying to hit as much as we can without taking four hours, okay? I, I was joking this morning. I said I probably got two hours worth of sermon notes, so just, you know, make worship short now. It's like, <laughs> just kidding. But um, we're going to cover a lot of different areas, and it's probably not going to be quite as deep as you would want it to go. But every passage that I'm talking about this morning, from Genesis 2 to Matthew 19 to 1 Corinthians 7, in the past, I have taught verse by verse, line by line through all of these things. And so in the description on the webpage and wherever you find sermon videos, I'm going to put the link or the playlist for those uh, sermons. You'll get to see what I looked like 10 years ago. Um, no, I won't go there. Never mind. You'll get to see what I looked like 10 years ago. And, um, you know, maybe I would explain things a little differently now or a little better now, but, but there is a lot of truth there. And so I would encourage you, if you want in-depth, line-by-line teaching of these passages, um, there's probably eight or ten sermons worth of material there. So go, go check those out. <laughs> All right. It's important that as we get into these topics, both singleness and marriage, that we're not simply talking about intellectual concepts or theological concepts, but rather we're talking about people and their lives, right? As we think about what it means to be married or what it means to be single, we're often talking about people's hopes and dreams, deepest desires to be loved and to love. We also wrestle with fears and, and brokenness, like the, the way that we fall short sometimes, our, our worries, am I lovable? Do people care about me? Uh, there are deep wounds associated with these topics, right? There are times when people wrong us in these scenarios and we carry hurts with us. And as we talk through these things, we want to remember we're not just talking concepts, but we're talking about a, a God who seeks to forgive 
and redeem and restore. So wherever you find yourself on this uh, spectrum, know that God has purposes and plans for you. These are things that we carry with us, and they're, they're deep, and we want to start by looking at God's design and also His redemption, all right? So, single or married, let's read. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man." That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So here in this creation account, we have a description of how God created man and God created woman. We read last week in verse 7 that God took the dust of the ground and formed it into um, man, and he breathed into man the breath of life. And we take a step further and we see the creation of, of the woman. And we said that Genesis 2 is kind of a zoomed-in, detailed look at what Genesis 1 describes. We've spent a lot of time in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. God says, let us make man in our image, in our image so that he can rule over the, the earth. And it says that in God's image, he created them male and female. And so then you get a little more detail in chapter 2, where God creates man and he says, he looks at the man... In verse 18, he puts him in the garden, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. This is the first statement that we have from God saying that something that he's done is, is, is not good, right? We see the creation of the, uh, of the heavens and the earth, and light and dark, and the land and the sea, and the animals, and God says it's good. But in this process of, of creating, he looks at man by himself, Adam in the garden, this single man, and he says it's not good for man to be there by himself. And he brings all the other animals around because he's going to make a suitable helper. Now, God knows that none of these animals are going to be a suitable helper for Adam. But the idea is he's showing Adam, like, here's all I've created, and I'm going to do something else so that you can have a suitable helper. It's important that we begin to understand those words, suitable helper. What exactly does, does that mean? Well, this word suitable means someone who corresponds to Adam, corresponds to the man. So it's it's not the same as Adam. There is a likeness, there's a similarity, but there's also a difference. Helper here is is not a, a negative term or a term that shows a lower status. Very often in Scripture, God himself is described by this word, the helper, right? So just someone who comes alongside and partners with the man in the task of stewarding the earth that God has given. 
And we see God taking from Adam's side. The word that's often translated rib doesn't have to mean rib. It could just mean from the side. So a lot of times we picture like a, a specific rib being taken out, but that, that doesn't have to be what it means. It's just from Adam's side, God takes um, and creates the woman. And at the end of this, like when God presents uh, the woman to, to Adam, he, he gets poetic. Like this is poetry, right? He, he's so excited, he he just launches off into poetry and says, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then we get this summary statement. Now, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. So the idea here is that there is this pattern where God has a man and a woman, this this a human being that is not the same as the man, but corresponds to him. She is created in God's image. And we have this pattern for a one flesh union between a man and a woman. The idea of one flesh, the picture is this, this unity that creates a new family group. We have a departure from mother and father and they are united together within this new family group that allows for offspring, that allows for children, right? And so this, this union between man and woman we call marriage. As we look at the end of this then, man is no longer alone. He now has a wife, but there's also the possibility for children, right? God looks at Adam and says it's not good for the man to be alone, and so he creates a way so that there are other human beings, and it's interesting, like, I, I don't know why God did this, but in his wisdom, he did this. Like, he could have just created more people out of clay, out of the dust, and breathed life into them, but he chose not to. He took from Adam, created the counterpart, his complement, and then from that relationship allowed for more human beings. Like, that's, that's an amazing thing. And so we see this as a pattern that's laid out for creation. But then the question comes is, does that mean that every person is supposed to get married? If that's the general pattern, and this is how um, God is working things, well, I think the answer to this question, as we look at the rest of Scripture and the totality of the teaching of Scripture, is, is no. It doesn't mean every single person is, is meant to get married. While this might be a general pattern, it's, it's not necessarily the only way to live pleasing before God. And so as we get into this question of whether, um, you know, someone should be single or someone should be married, we need to get some things straight. We need to get some things squared away, right? Sometimes in the church, we can be guilty of overemphasizing marriage. You know, there are classes for married people, there are teachings for married people, Sometimes things that we do are more geared towards married couples than they are single. And it's important that we um, realize that both circumstances are holy and righteous before God. It's not as if someone who is single is some kind of like second-class citizen in the church or like we're just waiting for them to grow up and, and get married. That, that is not the picture of Scripture. And it's important that we understand that marriage is not the highest form of human love. Sometimes we idealize marriage in such a way that it's like 
That's the desirable condition, and any condition outside of that is not desirable. It's less than, not as important. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. Marriage is, is not the highest form of love or human relationship. In fact, marriage and singleness, they're not measures of maturity or holiness. And nowhere in Scripture is that idea taught. In, in fact, there have been times, you, you read in the Bible, uh, as Paul is confronting false teachers, and he says there's this group of, of people, they're, they're telling people not to get married. Remember last week we talked about the, di- the, the makeup of humanity and how humanity is made of body and soul, and there's a physical and a non-physical aspect of us. And the Greeks, they downplayed the physical side of things. They thought the body was a prison for the soul, and the soul should be set free from it, right? And so anything related to the body, eating good food, getting married and enjoying a, a, a relationship of sexual intimacy, those things were, were negative things in their, in their eyes. So there are people in the early church who taught, you shouldn't get married. And there are people, as we see in 1 Corinthians 7, where they're wondering, hey, is it good for a, a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman? In other words, not to be married. And Paul discusses this. There's this debate within the church, like, which one of these statuses is more desirable? And the thing is, if you're married, it doesn't mean you're more mature or more holy than someone else. And if you're single, it doesn't mean you're more mature or more holy than someone else. Singleness and marriage in the Scriptures are treated as gifts. They are gifts from God. Can you? There we go. It went. All right, uh, they are treated as gifts from God. And one of the things that you notice when you read the Scriptures, when it talks about gifts, spiritual gifts, different gifts that God gives to the church, gifts are not primarily about the recipient of the gift. Gifts are actually given for the encouragement of a, a number of people. And we need to think about our status as single or married as a gift from God in order that we might serve Him well and serve others. And as we look at both of these things, both singleness and marriage have unique blessings and unique challenges. There are freedoms and there are limits of both statuses. All right, so let's talk about singleness here for a little bit. Paul talks about the benefits of being single. And one of those that he mentions is that the single person can live in undivided devotion to Christ. There aren't competing interests there in the way that there would be if there was marriage. Jesus, in a discussion of divorce, which we'll get to later, but Jesus says to his disciples that, you know, there are people just because of issues with the way that they were born that, that don't get married. And there are people who choose to live, he uses the word eunuch, there are people who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the idea here is that they, they remain single, they remain unmarried, and they remain um, chaste. They don't enter into a sexual relationship with someone, but rather they commit themselves fully to the kingdom of heaven. Paul, as he discusses this issue, in 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about whether to marry or stay single and how to act within a marriage and whether or not there should be divorce and all these types of things. He, he says, um, I wish all of you were like me. At this point in his life, Paul was, signal, was single. There was probably a time in his life where he may have been married. We don't know for sure. But at this point, as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, he is single 
And he says this, I wish all of you could be like me, and, but each one has their own gift. And he tells them in 1 Corinthians 7.28, he says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. I was having a, a conversation with a friend a number of years ago, and we were talking about um, singleness and marriage and um, the relationship between a husband and a, sp- uh, a wife, spouses, these types of things. And the question was put to me, well, like, obviously I want God to be first in my life, and I don't want my spouse to take that position. I don't want to idolize my spouse and, and um, pursue my spouse in a way that cuts out God. Like, how do I keep my spouse from becoming the center of all my attention and all my desire and keep them from taking the place of God? And I started to think about that question, and I started looking at the Bible. So, like, well, marriage is not just about me. It's about how we live before God. And as you, as you live with someone, you have to make sure that you're keeping that relationship in the proper place and God in his proper place. I started to give this theological answer from the Bible and the way that I think, right? And then at home later, I was uh, talking about the conversation with Hannah. And I said, hey, our friend, uh, they asked, you know, how do you do this? Hannah goes, without missing a beat, she goes, you live with them. Like, <laughs> when you live with someone, you begin to see all their flaws. You begin to see all their troubles, all their hardships, right? Like, and I, we both just laughed so hard because it's like such a practical answer, right? Like many times when, we, when, when we're in a single state and we see someone that we desire, we project all kinds of things on them, right? Things that they're not. We don't really see them as they really are. Even when we're married sometimes, we like to think of our spouse as we want them to be rather than what they actually are. And Paul is saying like that relationship, um, while there's lots of blessing in it, there's also lots of difficulty in that. And he says, I want to spare you all of this. He goes on to say, and this is going to be kind of too small to read, but I'll read it out loud, all right? Um, He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So when you read this passage in context, Paul is not saying that marriage is bad, and he's not saying that singleness is, is uh, way better than marriage. He's just weighing the pros and cons. Like if, if you're single, you don't have the same concerns as a married person has. And then you can focus your time and energy attention to serving the Lord and doing whatever it is that he's, he's called you to do. But if, if you're married, there are particular limitations that you have um, where you can't just drop everything and go to the next city or the next state or the, a country, a different country. You have someone else in your life to consider because you're supposed to be doing life together. And so there's this freedom that the single person has that the married person does not. And so the idea here is that singleness is a gift from God. 
It involves unique freedoms and limits. And it's sometimes around this uh, topic, you'll hear people say, well, we have different callings. Some people are called to be married. Some people are called to be single. I don't think that's an accurate way of stating what the Bible says. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about calling, but he talks about our calling to Jesus, how we're called to salvation in him. And he says, whatever circumstance you find yourselves in, and he gives different illustrations. He talks about um, whether or not you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're slave or free, whether you're married or unmarried and engaged or not. He goes, just because you came to know Christ, don't try to change your status. Like if you're a slave and you can get your freedom, then get your freedom. If you're unmarried and, and you want to marry, then that's okay. You can marry, but don't make this status the identity of who you are in your life all about either fixing it or changing it or um, just like living in it, whatever it is, like this is not the most important thing in your life. Your relationship with Jesus is the most important thing in your life. And whatever circumstance you find yourself in, you need to honor God in that circumstance. Okay, so then let's talk about marriage. By the way, when Jesus is questioned about issues of the afterlife, he tells people, um, people in this age, they're given in marriage, uh, they marry, but it's not going to be like that in heaven. Like, those who are in heaven are not going to marry and they're not going to be given in marriage. There is this kind of eternal state of what appears to be singleness from what Scripture teaches. And so, singleness on the earth foreshadows that. It's, it's not something to be downplayed or something to be looked down upon. It matters to God. Your, your life matters to God. Now, let's shift gears here and begin to look at marriage. Well, we saw what we read in Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. We said that this is the pattern for marriage for humanity. And as we begin to talk about marriage then, we need to get some things clear in our mind. Now, these are going to kind of sound negative, but I, I just want you to hear me out for a minute. First of all, marriage is not about my happiness. It's not about me feeling good and feeling loved. Yes, it's good to feel loved, but it's not primarily about my enjoyment or my happiness. Marriage is not about completing myself. You remember that movie? I think it was Tom Cruise. He's like, you complete me, right? They're like, no, marriage is, is not about finding someone who makes you feel complete. Marriage is not about fixing my problems. I need someone to come and just solve everything for me. Like, if you go into a marriage thinking about my happiness, completing me, fixing my problems, that is a recipe for disaster and destruction. That is not God's purpose and intention in marriage. You will have many, 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 many troubles in this life if you go into a relationship thinking it's about satisfying your desires, making you happy. Now, are there great joys that come out of marriage? Absolutely, yes. Marriage is, is, is fun. It's, there, there are many blessings within marriage, but it's not primarily about me. It is about two people coming together and serving the Lord. You know, 
one of the things that, that you know, I heard as I was thinking about being, being married and going to marriage counseling and things like that is like, Everyone brings baggage with them into whatever relationship you're in, whether it's a marriage relationship, a friendship, um, uh, parents and children, whatever. Everyone has their own hang-ups. Everyone has their own hurts. Everyone has their own sins. They all, you bring all those things into every relationship that you enter into. And if you're looking for the other person to be your savior, you're going to be disappointed. But any of our relationships, and marriage especially, is about two broken people two people who fall short of the glory of God, coming together and living together in such a way that as they seek the Lord, they find healing. But that can be true of single people as well. So the point that I'm trying to make is that don't expect your spouse to fix everything. And if you're not happy when you're not married, you're not going to be happy just because you got married. It's not going to fix your problems. All right? So marriage then is a partnership between a husband and wife And it's one of the ways that God intends for us to enjoy the blessings of creation and represent Him on the earth. Remember back to the creation mandate. That's what what I call this, right? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, right? God created male and female. And the only way that they can fill the earth and subdue it is is if there's some kind of marriage relationship where there can be more human beings being produced, right? And so if humanity is going to fill the earth and subdue it, Marriage is God's way of creating more people to fulfill that task. And so it's one way of enjoying the blessing of God's creation and representing Him on this earth. The marriage relationship is supposed to be characterized by mutual care and affection. I could preach three or four sermons on here. I would encourage you to go online and look at the passages uh, uh, the teachings on 1 Corinthians 7, the, the teachings on Ephesians 5, that, that spouses are committing themselves fully to one another, both body and soul. That's what we read there in a few minutes ago. The, the unmarried woman um, is fully devoted both body and spirit to the Lord, right? But when you choose to get married, you are committing yourself both body and spirit to someone else to your husband, or to your wife. In 1 Corinthians 7, they're talking about the physical intimacy between a couple. And it says that um, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now, there is this idea that you're giving yourself completely to the other person. And marriage is a picture of the love between Christ and the church. In Ephesians 5, it says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. That husbands are to to lead the way in sacrificial love in the marriage. And that both spouses are serving one another with, with love and respect in the way that Christ serves the church and the church serves Christ with love and respect. This relationship is supposed to be about mutual care, mutual satisfaction, where you're constantly giving for the good of the other person. Okay, then what about sexual intimacy? It's important that we understand that 
marriage and sex are not the same thing. Marriage is not sex, and simply because you have sex with someone doesn't make you married. At the same time, the marriage relationship is designed to be a sexual relationship. This is God's intention. In 1 Corinthians 7, at the beginning, they have a question for Paul. Is it good for a man not to touch a woman, not to have sexual relationships with a woman? And he begins this long discussion about the pros and cons of marriage and the pros and cons of being single. But he basically says, if you're married, you should be physically intimate if it's possible. Like, this relationship was designed for marriage. It's also important that we keep in mind that sex does not equal love. Simply a physical relationship is not the same thing as a loving relationship, nor is the sexual relationship between husband and wife the highest form of love. We said marriage is not the highest form of love. On the flip side of things, there are messages that we get in our society all the time because you're, you're being bombarded constantly when you turn on the TV, when you watch a movie, um, when you drive down the road and you see images on the, on the billboards, whatever. It's like um, you're constantly being bombarded with, with sexual imagery and sexual messages. And we need to understand that sex is not purely physical. It's not simply about a physical relationship, but rather it is intimacy between a husband and a wife. That physical intimacy is one aspect of the total commitment between a husband and wife. And that intimacy needs to extend beyond the physical to the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual side of us. Again, we are human beings created body and soul, and we should not neglect one aspect of us, but rather we need to look at ourselves holistically and look at our relationships holistically, look at our marriages holistically, that there is this total intimacy, and that is pictured in the physical intimacy of the couple. If you look at what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says that they were both naked and they felt no shame. In other words, they see all of each other. They're not condemning each other. There's no shame, but rather they are honoring each other in the totality of giving completely of themselves to the other person. So this is about honor and care and not shame. The Bible is consistent in its teaching that any sexual relationship outside of marriage is immoral. Hebrews 13.4, that marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed is kept pure. Any sexual relationship outside of that covenant commitment between husband and wife is not right before God. At the same time, it's not something to be, um, uh, sex is not something to be uh, ashamed of or hidden or, or not talked about. If you look at the way sexual relationships are described in marriage, yes, you need to keep certain things to yourself. We don't want to hear all the details. But, but in general, sexual relationships within a marriage are affirmed and celebrated. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, don't deprive one another, but serve one another in this relationship. In the book of Song of Songs, 
we see this celebration of this physical relationship between husband and wife, where they talk about their love, where they talk about beauty. It's, it's very descriptive. Um, you know, from, from head to toe, it talks about beauty and desire and delight and pleasure. God does not shy away from this. We're being bombarded from our society with certain messages, and we need to have a faithful, biblical view of what God teaches in His Word about this relationship between a husband and a wife. So it's not something to be avoided. Rather, it's supposed to be celebrated and affirmed in a proper and holy way. All right? Now, we've talked about several aspects of marriage. Now we need to ask the question, what about divorce? Is it ever right? Is it ever permissible to end a marriage relationship. First, we're going to begin with the ideal and God's original intent, all right? That marriage is supposed to be a lifelong commitment between a husband and a wife. Several times in Scripture, Romans chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if he dies, then she's free to remarry. And the uh, vice versa, it would be true. A, a man is, is bound to his wife as long as he lives. But if she dies, he's free to remarry. So it's supposed to be a lifelong till death do us part. That's the ideal. And the question is, well, are there ever legitimate reasons for divorce? We see divorce specifically talked about in a couple of passages, one by Jesus in Matthew 19 and another by Paul. And we're going to look at what both teach about this idea. So the, the Jews, they're coming to Jesus in Matthew 19, and they're trying to trap him, and they're trying to like, ask tough questions and trick questions to get him to contradict himself and all these types of things. Right? So they come to Jesus, and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, as a modern reader, and I just read this passage um, there are things that I'm unaware of that I don't know about. But when you read the history and when you read the literature, there are this, there's this great debate among the Jews happening in Jesus' day. And there are two schools of thought. One of them is fairly liberal from a divorce standpoint, and the other one's fairly conservative. Right? So on one side, they're saying, yeah, you can divorce your wife for any and every reason. Like, if she burns supper that would constitute grounds for divorce. If you, don't, if you find something about her that you don't like, you just write her a certificate of divorce and off she goes. You're, you're good to go to find a new wife, right? The other side of the debate is saying, no, 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 there's only limited circumstances like adultery where you can be free to divorce your wife. And they ask Jesus, hey, what do you think, teacher? Like, you're claiming to teach from God. Settle the debate for us is what, is what they're um, wanting him to do. And so Jesus, as he answers this question, he does a couple of things. First of all, he cites Genesis 1 and 2. He says, haven't you read that in the beginning God created them male and female? And that it says, for this reason a man will leave his father and father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are two and not one. And then Jesus says, therefore, 
what man has joined together, or excuse me, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus relies on Genesis 1 and 2 as the pattern. And he says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. In other words, you're not supposed to get divorced. That's not God's intent. The Jews, they know their Bible, so they say, yeah, but what about Moses? Moses commanded us to write our wives a certificate of divorce and to send them off. Moses allowed for divorce. And Jesus' answer to this is, well, is basically, yes, Moses allowed you to do that. Moses permitted divorce because your hearts were hard, but from the beginning, it was not that way. And then Jesus tells them, that I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus is saying, like, as he answers their question, it was never God's intent that divorce would be a thing. But God also recognized the hardness of people's hearts. And so in the law of Moses, there is a way to deal with certain circumstances that might require a divorce. And Jesus says here, and he gives this exception, if anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries and marries another, that person commits adultery. Now that, if, if you're me, if you're like me, that's, you got all kinds of questions about that. Let's see if we can answer some of those. First question, is this, is this Jesus' exhaustive teaching on marriage and divorce? And I would say no. You got to remember, as we read the Gospels and as we read letters, they're um, within a certain context answering particular questions. Jesus is being asked to settle an ongoing debate. And he's looking at them and telling these people, those of you who want to divorce your wife because she burnt supper, you're committing adultery. You want to commit adultery. That is the problem with your heart. So this is not an exhaustive teaching. This is not an exhaustive list of all the exceptions for divorce. But he's answering them very strictly because he's pointing out the problems with their hearts. This this, um, answer that he gives is is, is so strict, the disciples are like, well, if that's the case between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. If I can't divorce her for, you know, whatever I see and whatever, like whatever problem is, you know, I'll just it'd be better to stay single. And that's where we have Jesus talking about people living like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God, that not everyone can accept the married life and what it takes. All right, so Jesus says sexual immorality is, is one exception when it comes to marriage and divorce. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to read some more. Paul is, again, going back and forth about whether it's good to be married. He says, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So he lays down the general rule that divorce is not desirable if you do separate. And by the way, this is not like our modern language of separation and divorce that are legal categories. This is just meaning like splitting up as a couple, all right? That's the idea. And then ultimately, the legal status of divorce. But they, when you see this word separate, it's not separation as, as we define it today, right? Just, it's another word for divorce. A, woman must not, a wife must not divorce her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife, right? That's the standard. That's, that's the design, But then he goes on to say there are certain circumstances where divorce is permissible. 
He says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with them, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. But if the unbeliever leaves, verse 16, let it be so, the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances, God has called us to live in peace. So we have Paul imagining a scenario where we've got two unbelievers. One of them becomes a Christian. Now they're living with an unbelieving spouse. Should they just divorce their spouse because they became a Christian and their spouse is not a Christian? Paul's answer to that is no. If the unbeliever wants to be in their relationship, then, then stay in their relationship. But if the unbeliever decides to walk away, the believing spouse is not bound. In other words, the divorce is permissible and they are free to remarry. The believer is not bound in such circumstances. So then we ask the question, like, what are the grounds for divorce then? Well, we've got two very clear ones. Jesus talked about it in the context of the debate with the Jews. Paul talks about it in the context of um, believers and unbelievers. But um, sexual immorality and desertion by an unbelieving spouse. And the question is, are there others? And I think as we look at the totality of Scripture, I, I think that the answer is yes. This phrase, in such circumstances, he says, if the unbeliever leaves, in such circumstances, the, the brother or sister is not bound. This, this phrase, in such circumstances, is this kind of um, pointing to a category of reasons. It's not describing a very specific reason, the desertion, but it's saying desertion is one of a category. Similar cases. What does that mean then? Well, what might fall into that category? Things that are destructive of the marriage covenant, like divorce, like desertion. So things like abuse would fall into this category. If someone is attacking their spouse physically, if they're is any form of abuse, I believe that constitutes grounds for divorce because it is a breaking of that marriage covenant. Now, it's very important that we not get carried away with this because if you're not careful, you're going to end up in a situation where like, I don't like you right now and you don't like me right now and so that gives me grounds for divorce. That is not what the Bible teaches. God says that the husband must not divorce his wife and the wife must not divorce her husband. But there are a limited number of circumstances in which divorce is permissible. We don't get divorced because we found somebody else who makes us feel better about ourselves. We don't get divorced because we're bored and would like to go off on a new adventure somewhere. We don't get divorced because we're not getting along right now. The marriage relationship is one of dying to yourself in service of another person. That's what, that's what it says, that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And if you're not willing to do that, then you have no business being married. At the same time, there are a few circumstances where it seems that God permits 
divorce. Well, what about remarriage then? Is it okay for a divorced person to get remarried? And again, Paul says, the brother or sister is not bound in those circumstances. And it was assumed in Jesus' day and in Paul's day that if there were moral grounds for divorce, then that believer was free to remarry. So if there was um, abuse or desertion or adultery, the believer was, was free to remarry. They were no longer bound to that covenant relationship. Okay, so tough stuff, lots of questions there. There are many more layers to that that we could wrestle with. Um, but for the sake of time, we're going we're gonna to close out with, with one other side angle here as we think about singleness and, and divorce. And this is something that, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that you um, have questions about, but this is something that I often see from critics of a biblical view of marriage, of God's teaching on marriage. And maybe you've seen this online in a debate somewhere where you're trying to share God's view of marriage and God's view of sexuality and God's view of divorce, all these types of things. And then someone will go, yeah, but doesn't the Bible allow polygamy? I mean, there's all these people when you read the Bible, they got two wives, 10 wives, 100 wives. Solomon had 700 wives or whatever and how many concubines. Like, doesn't the Bible? And so they'll try to use this argument as a way to undermine what you're trying to communicate about God's design for marriage. And all it takes is like a little bit of thinking and a little bit of Bible reading to answer this question. Um, whether or not they accept your answer is going to be another thing. But I want to prepare you um, because this whole series is not just about how am I living my life, but how am I sharing my faith with others. I want to prepare you for this objection. Does the Bible allow for polygamy? Uh, the short answer is no. Just because something is recorded in the Bible doesn't mean God approves of it. There are times in the Bible where we see people lying. Does that mean that God promotes lying? No. There are, there are times when stories are being told and circumstances are being described, but that doesn't mean God approves of everything that happens in those circumstances or in those stories, right? Specifically, like when it comes to the nation of Israel, God warns them, one day you're going to have a king. He's going to want to gather lots of horses. He's going to want to gather, hoard lots of wealth, and he's going to want to have a lot of wives, that's a bad scenario, don't do it, right? He, he warns them. When you see in the New Testament, again, they constantly go back to Genesis 1 and 2 for the pattern of marriage. Uh, Jesus does it in Matthew 19. Paul does it in Ephesians 5, a, a passage that we've talked about before. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, not wives. When you look at the qualifications for leadership in the church, Elders and deacons, they're supposed to be a uh, um, one-woman man is literally what the text reads. Um, translations, when you read it, it'll say faithful to his wife, but a one-woman man. In other words, you're not supposed to have more than, than one wife. If you're married, it needs to be to one. And if you're not married, then you need to be faithful and, and pure and holy in your singleness. When you read the stories in the Old Testament about people who have more than one wife, any of those stories ever go well? Like Sarah and Hagar doesn't go well. Like every single one of those stories, there are major problems, problems with favoritism, not only between the wives, but also the children. Like it's screaming at you, this is a bad scenario. Without the author saying, don't do this, he's screaming at you, this is not the way to live. It is not a healthy scenario. 
So no, the Bible does not permit or allow for polygamy. And it's a, it's a silly argument that you'll hear brought up, but it's because people aren't really thinking, and they don't really understand the Bible. They just, they probably never even read the Bible. They just know of these stories and go, yeah, but the Bible. And we have to like patiently and lovingly, lovingly walk them through, well, this is what the Bible actually teaches. All right, so marriage is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, and that relationship is supposed to reflect the love between Christ and the church. When it comes to singleness and marriage, I know I covered a lot of ground today, but it's important to remind you that our God is a God of compassion and He's a God of grace. That He forgives, that He heals, and that He, he redeems. And no matter whether you've lived the most pure life that you can imagine or, rather, or whether you've, you've uh, failed greatly, we have all failed in areas in relation to our singleness and our marriage. There are times when we're selfish. There are times where we sin relationally. There are times where we sin physically and sexually. And God is a God who calls us to repentance, who forgives, and who wants to heal the hurts and the wounds that we have. God redeems and restores. So no matter where you find yourself, no matter what's going on, God has plans and purposes for you if you will come to Him and seek His face. The Bible's teaching on singleness and marriage. Singleness and marriage, they have unique blessings and challenges. And wherever we find ourselves, we're called to honor God and live appropriately in whatever relationship or lack of relationship that we have. Remember, these things are gifts from God. And when God gives gifts, He doesn't just give them for your own enjoyment so that you can hold, them on, hold on to them and just um, enjoy them yourself, but rather we are called to use our gifts to serve the Lord and to serve others. So if you find yourself single right now, devote yourself completely to the Lord and serve Him and use the freedom that you have to serve others. And if you find yourself married right now, devote yourself to the Lord and use the, the strength that comes from that relationship so that you can both serve the Lord and accomplish His plans and purposes for your life. All right, let's pray together today and ask for the Lord's help. God, I want to thank you for this time that we have had to study your Word. And I know that there are a lot more things that, that, that could have been said, but Lord, your word is faithful and true, and you lead us into the path of life. And God, I thank you that you created us each in your image, and that you have plans and purposes and gifts for each person. And God, I pray that no matter where we find ourselves, single or married, broken or whole, somewhere in between, Lord, you are there in our midst. And you desire to bring about our salvation, our healing, our forgiveness, and our wholeness. God, we pray that you would work in each one of our lives so that we could bring glory and honor to you, that we would be good stewards of what you have put in our care. And God, that we would be able to declare the message of your love to the world through our singleness 
or our marriage. Lord, we pray for that power in Jesus' name. Amen.